0: Now we're introduced to what's called the Ark narrative. The Ark of the Covenant narrative is chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. And what's interesting is Samuel is not going to really be mentioned in any of these chapters, not in a large base. He'll come in at the end of 7, but he's kind of, you would think that Samuel would have a very prominent role in this. Yet he's not. And so what's interesting is that Samuel is going to kind of take a backseat role, he's not going to be mentioned in his narrative. Yet the Ark of the Covenant that's only been mentioned one time, as in Samuel was close to it, is going to become very prominent in the story. And this is the very amazing thing that God is going to do, is it's all going to center around the Ark of the Covenant. And the point is that even though Samuel is the prophet, and you would think that he is like really amazing because the word of God is coming through him, every word of God is fulfilled through him, he's more righteous than anybody else, so to speak, and all the people are looking to him and following him, In the end, this narrative is making the point that Yahweh is still the king, though. That we just elevated Samuel up, and you now expect Samuel to start doing these amazing things, but for the next three chapters, he takes a back seat, and the Ark of the Covenant becomes very prominent. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to pretty much dictate everything. And by that, I mean as a symbolic representation of Yahweh, not that the Ark of the Covenant is like this magical thing. Because that's the other point of this story. It's not magical. But the point is that Samuel is not the main character. Yahweh is. And this is going to be pressed in here. Chapter 4, verse 1b. Then the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. And they camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines camped at Aphek. And the Philistines arranged their forces to fight Israel as the battle spread out. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men in the battle line of the field. Now, Aphek is right here on this river, right in the yellow, it's in Philistine territory, and Ebenezer is right by Aphek, just literally on the other side of this imaginary line in the red area, and so, and oh, by the way, Ebenezer means my stone of help, stone of help. remember that song, I lift my Ebenezer, and I always like do this poll with people, I'm like, what does Ebenezer mean, they're like, I don't know, it's like, but we're singing this praise song to God and we have no idea what that word means. Now, I don't mean that every one of you don't know what it means, but so many people don't. Ebenezer is a stone of help. So when you're lifting up your Ebenezer, you're not lifting up Ebenezer Scrooge. You're lifting up your stone of help. Right? That's why Dickens used Ebenezer as his name because he ends up becoming a help at the end of the story to a lot of people, even though he doesn't start that way. And so Ebenezer's stone of help. They are at the stone of help and they're going to fight against the Philistines. However, the Philistines just clobber them. Now, we're never told why they're fighting the Philistines, why the Philistines are fighting them. We're never told why God has not given them victory in any kind of a way. But that's not important. It's not important that you know why they're fighting. All that's important is that the Philistines are impressing them. Now, it is important why they're being oppressed and why God is not helping them But by now, you've read the book of Judges, and you know exactly why God is not helping them. It's because they have been disobedient to Yahweh, pursuing idols, and living like the Canaanites around them. And so God gave them over to the foreign enemies to oppress them. And remember, the last one was Samson, and they were oppressed by the Philistines. Yet, the people never cried out to help for God. This is very important because remember, at the time that Samuel is becoming prophet, right now, you have to remember that just probably five or ten years ago, Samson just died. So Samson was called to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the Philistines are oppressing Israel and attacking them and conquering them. And the people are not crying out for help at all. They're so used to the oppression, they're so compromised with the Philistines, they're not crying out to God for help. It's the first time of all the judges they don't cry out to help. The irony is they're at the stone of help right now, and they're not crying out for help. Not only that, they never saw Samson as a leader. Remember, Samson was so narcissistic and so selfish that when he did kill the Philistines, not for the right reasons, but for his own vengeance, the Israelites got mad at him and said, Why are you causing problems for us? We're going to hand you over to be killed. That's not the way you treat your leaders called by God. So they're even handing their shaphats, their deliverers, over to the enemy. And Samson never delivered them in any kind of a way. So this is the exact same Philistine oppression that the book of Judges ended with. And Samuel's not coming into the picture, and they're getting clobbered. They're getting clobbered in the same way that they got clobbered at the end of Samson's story. And they're getting clobbered because of their idolatry. And they're getting clobbered because God has not lifted up a leader to deliver them. But what's interesting here is Eli is now the judge and knows that they're not crying out to Eli for help. And Eli is not said to have been called by God. And Eli is not going out and leading them as a judge against the enemy. Eli is sitting in a chair eating sacrificial meat in the tabernacle. Now we've gone from Samson who is just a totally self-absorbed, narcissistic person who just kills Philistines for his own vengeance. Now we've gone to a judge who just sits and eats all the time and never, ever helps God as he's stealing from God. So we have digressed significantly. So one would then expect Samuel to come into the picture as the next judge. So they got clobbered. When the army came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why did Yahweh let us be defeated today by the Philistines? They're so disconnected from the law that they don't even know. Well, maybe it's all your idolatry and your corruption and what you did to all those women and under the Levites back in Judges. I mean, let me just count the ways. But it never occurs to them. Let's take with us the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from Shiloh. When it is with us, it will save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, what's wrong with this? It's like an idol. Yes, they're treating the Ark of Yahweh like an idol. And they're saying the Ark will save us and not, not Yahweh. Let's bring our own idol into the picture and this will save us. They're treating it as a magical talisman or talisman. They're treating it as a magical talisman. Now, remember, Samson believed that his hair was given to him by God to become magical and give him strength. And now they think the Ark of the Covenant is a magical gold box, that if you just rub it, power of God comes out. The problem is that this is all pagan way of thinking. The pagans believe that objects are endowed with magic, not Yahweh. And Yahweh never, ever, ever portrays anything as having power. Everything is just usually symbols of something that you're supposed to theologically understand about God. Not that that thing actually is powerful in itself. And so they're trusting in this physical object more than they are Yahweh. But what's interesting is that they don't go to Samuel. It's already made it very clear that Samuel is seen as a leader during that time period. Samuel's everything that he says is fulfilled by God. And yet they don't go to Samuel. And so Samuel is their leader, but they don't go to him for help. We'd rather have a magical box. Because the magical box is more trustworthy than the prophet. Because it's a magical box. So, the army is sent to Shiloh, and they took from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, of hosts, who sits between the cherubim. Now the two sons of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now you know what's happening. Hophni and Phinehas don't ever really leave the tabernacle and go to battle. In fact, the Levites don't fight in battles. And the Ark of the Covenant wasn't really mentioned at all in the book of Judges. So this is a very rare occurrence for them to actually bring the Ark of God out. But why is God allowing the Ark to be brought out of the tabernacle to a war? To get Hophni and Phineas out into the battlefield. But there's another reason too. The first thing is to get Hophni and Phineas on the battlefield. The second is what's coming next. When the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh arrived in the camp, all of Israel shouted so loudly that the ground shook. So they're yelling, and the yelling here is like a battle cry, a battle cry to go to war. And we know now we're going to be victorious because the box is with us. It just sounds so stupid when you say it that way. I mean, no disrespect against the Ark of the Covenant, but this is the point that God is making, actually. When the Philistines heard the sound of the shout, they said, What is this loud shout in the camp of the Hebrews? Then they realized that the Ark of Yahweh had arrived in the camp, and the Philistines were scared because they thought that the gods had come to the camp. They too said, too bad for us, we've never seen anything like this. Too bad for us, who can deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with all sorts of plagues in the desert. Be strong and act like men, you Philistines, or else you will wind up serving the Hebrews the way that they have served you have served them. Act like men. Here's what's interesting. The narrator is just giving you the words and the thoughts of the Israelites, and now it's giving you the words and the thoughts of the Philistines. Remember, dialogue is very rarely mentioned in the Bible. So when dialogue is mentioned, the narrator is making very specific points. What point is the narrator making by giving you the dialogue of both the Israelites and the Philistines? Do you know similarities? Pretty much thinking the same way. Exactly. So what point is the narrator making? There's no difference in their theology. It's pagan. The chosen people of God are thinking, if we bring the box into the camp, a God has come into the camp to give us victory. And the Philistines are thinking, oh my goodness, they just brought their god into the camp. We're going to lose. Because the Philistines are used to thinking their gods are idols. And now Israel's thinking exactly like a pagan. The Ark of the the Covenant is not a symbol of God dwelling with them, like the wedding ring doesn't make me married, it's a symbol of my covenant with my wife. They're thinking the box is God, so to speak. Now, remember, you're thinking, wait, that's kind of dumb. I mean, they know that's not a box. And come on, okay, they're Israelites, they've become pagan, but no Israelite's actually going to think that's Yahweh. Well, remember, it's not that they literally think that's Yahweh. It's that they believe that the spirit of the God is in it. Nobody really believed that the idol was their God, because remember, they had multiple idols. But they believed that the spirit of the God indwelt the idol, and therefore the God is the idol because the spirit is in the idol. And the same way that we would say, I am not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is in me. And this is why the idols were called the images of the gods. Because they bear that. And the same way that the spirit entered the idol, the same way God breathed his spirit into us as his images. And so that's the way they're viewing it. And so they've adopted that pagan way of thinking, and they're not thinking the box is Yahweh, but they're thinking a part of Yahweh's spirit is in the box. So in that sense... God is the box in the same way, well, God is in the box. God is in the box in the same way that God is in us. And that's the way they're viewing it. That's the way they're viewing it. But there's another point going on here. What is the difference between the Philistines' words and the Israelites' words? There is a difference. They did mention God and not just God, but God's, plural. What was Israel's primary job? What is the whole point of being the image of God? What's the whole point of being the chosen people of God? To make him known to to the people. Now, when Moses led Israel out of the Red Sea, through to the Red Sea, 50 years later, sorry, 40 years later, Rahab says, everybody in Canaan knows what your God has done and how he's been faithful to you and what your God, and we're all scared of your God, and I want to be part of your God over and over again. The Philistines are saying the gods, the gods. But notice that they're talking about the gods who have given the victory at Egypt. Israel has so poorly represented Yahweh that the Philistines automatically assume that the Israelites worship gods just like they do. Which means not only is Israel pagan just like the Philistines because they're thinking the same way about the box, But they're also so pagan that everybody literally thinks that Israel worships multiple gods just like they do. There has been no difference. Everything we're seeing here, the corruption, the idolatry, their thinking, their theology, their lack of representation or representation the wrong way, has all shown that there's no difference between the Israelites and the Israelites canines on a large scale now are there individual people who are drastically different yes we just read about them boaz ruth and naomi and many many other people here and there but the culture as a whole the culture as a whole there's no difference and we can see this in the church there's a lot of churches that you walk into a lot of christians you talk to and you're like your theology is not any different than anybody else out there your theologies and, and, and you can go into so many churches and think there's nothing here that is unique. There's nothing here that's unique in any kind of a way. And so after many, many years of compromise, the irony here is Israel doesn't know that. Just like a lot of churches and a lot of Christians have no idea that there is no difference between them and everybody else. They think because they're going to church and they say, God, there must be a difference. But the theology is everything. And so there's no difference between these two people. So the Philistines fought, verse 10. And Israel was defeated. They all ran home, and slaughter was very great. And 30,000 foot soldiers fell in the battle, and the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were killed. So the box gave them victory. No, they were clobbered. And all the Israelites ran away. Remember the very beginning of Joshua and Judges? Whenever Israel showed up in battle, it was always the enemy who turned on themselves and killed each other, and they ran away, and the Israelites were always chasing them. Now, this time, it's the Israelites that are being defeated, and they're running away and fleeing. The point is, God, in a way, is he's attacking his ark in a theological sense. Now, he's not attacking his ark in an anti-ark kind of thing. He's attacking the ark in a bad perception, bad theology of the ark kind of a way. So it's attacking that idea that in the end what God is saying is, it's still just a box. Yes, to tr- here's the difficulty here. This is the tension with God. The box is sacred. The box is holy. If you come to it with a, 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 an irreverent heart, if you touch it like you can just handle it in irreverent way you want, there is serious consequences for that. But at the same time, it's just a box. And that's why you need to understand that it is, it's not that the box is magical and the box is going to kill you if you touch it in the wrong way or that you're to approach the box with reverence. Is that there is no way that any of them can ever see God. and There's no way that any of them can get close to God. So the box becomes a symbol of God, and so the way that they treat the box is the way that they're treating God in their heart. And if I can't come into God's presence, and if I can't approach Him, then I can at least demonstrate by faith in action how I feel about Him by the way I approach a symbol. Just like this wedding ring is just a piece of metal. That's all it is. I mean, you can put a piece of yarn on my finger and it would represent the same thing. What I do to this ring has nothing to do with my marriage. Taking it off does not make me not married anymore. Putting it back on doesn't make me married again. If I threw it across the room, it wouldn't do anything to my marriage. However, there's a certain extent that the way that I treat this ring would communicate a lot about how how I feel about our marriage to my wife and everybody else. Right? And so in some ways, this is just a physical object, and that's it. And who cares what it really is and the grand purpose of things? when it comes to my marriage. But in a way, this ring is sacred, and it is holy, in the sense that it does represent something very sacred and very holy. And the way that I treat it says something about the way that I feel about my marriage and the way I feel about my wife. And just like we would think it was so dumb to put this ring up like on a podium and like bow to it and worship it and and think that if I pray to it or caress it, it will give my marriage great health and vitality that's what they're doing to the box effectively one, won, won, even though they were afraid the other one lost so what's that box it means nothing right it's nothing but now what god's going to do is endow it with more meaning and so what he's going to do next is show them because this is what he's going to do first before you give somebody theology you have to deconstruct their previous theology so right now he's deconstructing their theology of this is just a box you put your hope and trust in this box but it did nothing for you but now he's going to use the box to show him who's really in power and who is really controlling so in one sense if the box doesn't work but in the other sense the box starts doing something then you realize it's not really the box it's the one who's using the box what he's doing now is the box is just a box but the story we're going into is but in the hands of Yahweh it becomes an instrument. Just like Israel is just a nation, but in the hands of Yahweh, it becomes a great and powerful instrument. Just like you and I are just humans, flesh, but in the hands of God, we can become powerful instruments in the kingdom of God. Just like the storm is just a storm that comes down and brings rain and sometimes tear downs trees and houses, but in the hands of God, it can wipe out the enemy and deliver Israel. And so we need to understand something. That the box is not a God, but the box is a tool of God that he can use it in powerful ways just like everything in creation. And so that's the proper theology that we're to have. So great, yeah, He is deconstructing that theology so he can build a new theology on this box. Here's the question. It is still true that every single time the Ark of the Covenant goes out in public is to be covered with animal skins from the tabernacle and then covered with the blue linen fabric. Remember everything, the, the bronze altar, the, the candle stand, everything got covered with the blue and the purple fabrics of the temple, tabernacle, and then covered with the animal skins. But the Ark of the Covenant got covered with the animal skins and then the blue linen fabric. So that you weren't allowed to look on any of these objects as a normal Israelite. However, you could tell by the order of the fabric which one was actually the Ark of the Covenant. And God, no one was allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant except for the priests. And the priests were not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. They were only allowed to touch the poles that went through the side of the Ark of the Covenant. So it was still to be revered because it represented, like the wedding ring, the covenant. But now the Philistines are manhandling this with all their grimy little pagan fingers and carrying it in proper ways and nothing is happening to them. And the question is, why does God judge Israel so harshly for their mistreating of it? But now the Philistines were like even more jacked up. Nothing's happening to them. Because they don't know any better. And God is prolonging, or a better way of saying is delaying the judgment in order to bring a more powerful judgment. He's allowing them to handle it. It's kind of like watching a movie. If you give an enemy a bomb, you don't detonate it until they've taken it into the heart of the camp. And that's what he's doing. He's allowing them to handle it because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Everything in creation is his. Everything was created for his purpose and his purpose alone. And if he wants to change the rules to accomplish his will, he can. And he changes the rules for a little bit to bring it into Philistine territory. Now, what's interesting is, remember Samson, who didn't serve God for the right reasons? But God used his desire. He really liked Philistine women. And God used his desire for Philistine women so that Samson would go into Philistine territory. And if he's not going to kill them for God, I know that sounds so bad, but... um, If he's not going to kill them in obedience to God, then at least get him in Philistine territory with his lust and desires. And because Samson never got what he wanted, and when he didn't get what he wanted he threw tantrums, so you put the spirit of God upon him and turn him into a biological hand grenade. So that's what God's doing with the Ark of the Covenant. Samson's not doing right anymore. He's dead. Nobody else is. So send the Ark of the Covenant into the heart of the, the ant nest and let the poison do its work, so to speak. And that's what he's going to do here. So Hophni and Phineas are dead. And that's the final note here. The Ark of the Covenant is captured and Hophni and Phineas are dead. Verse 12. On that day, a Benjamite ran from the battle lines and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and dirt on his head. That was a very common way of expressing mourning. People in the Eastern world are way more expressive with their emotions. Americans, we just like to bottle up. Although that's changing in the the last couple of generations. They were very expressive. So when you mourn, you would rip your clothes, you put ashes on your head. Like you make it clear to everybody what's going on. Like nobody has to like wonder what you're feeling in the Eastern cultures. You're, you're out there. And when you say, hey, how are you doing? And somebody's like, oh, good. And they don't really mean that. That would never happen in Israel. You know, they would tell you. So when he arrived at Shiloh, Eli was sitting in his chair. Notice once again, remember? His chair even though this is in the tabernacle. Watching by the side of the road, for he was very worried about the ark of God. That's interesting. His sons and the ark of the God have gone out to battle. God never said anything about the ark of the God, ark of God. Yet he said his sons are going to die. Yet what is he worried about? The ark. Now it could be that he's resigned himself completely to the judgment of his sons, so there's no point worrying about them. But the ark of God doesn't go out very often, and he's worried about that. But at the same time, he doesn't need to be worried about the ark of the God. Is there anything he can do about it? Like God can't handle his own box correctly? I've got to worry for it. Usually you worry because you're worried how they're going to, what's going to happen to him. But this is God. You don't have to worry about this. So everything about it here is just misplaced priorities. Even when you think, oh, that's good, he's worried about the ark, then you're like, wait a minute, he's worried about God? He's viewing it as just a box as well. The man entered the city to give his report, and the whole city cried out. When Eli heard the outcry, he said, What is the commotion? The man quickly came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes looked straight ahead, and he was unable to see. The mans That's just a way of saying they can't focus on anything or see movement. The man said to Eli, I am one who came from the battle lines. Just today I fled from the battle lines. Eli asked, how did things go, my son? The messenger replied, Israel has fled from the Philistines. The army has suffered a great defeat. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark, not the sons, he fell backward from his chair because beside the gate. He broke his neck and died, and he was old and heavy. He had judged Israel for 40 years. That's the first mention of him being a judge. And you're like, really? He was a judge? He didn't look like a judge except for him sitting in his chair telling people what to do. Here's the poetic justice. He fell backwards out of his chair. He was shocked by the Ark of the Covenant, not by his son's dying. So he fell up backwards, and he landed on his neck. And he landed on his neck, and it broke because he was heavy. So as he has honored himself, now the honor has crushed him. His making himself heavy, glory, has now crushed his neck and destroyed him. And the reason he's heavy is because he stole from God and the sacrifices. And now the sacrifice is the thing that's killing him. It's God's judgment. This is poetic. This is poetic. Now, the really amazing thing that God is going to do is going to begin to happen. And the man of God's word is being fulfilled. And one of the major themes throughout Samuel, and especially Kings, is that the word of God never fails. The word of God never fails. Kings may screw up, judges may be incompetent, Prophets may become corrupt, but the word of God never fails. It's the one thing that is constantly faithful throughout everything. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and close to giving birth. And when she heard the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she doubled over and gave birth. But her labor pains were too much for her. And as she was dying, the women who were there with her said, "'Don't be afraid.' You have given birth to a son. But she did not reply or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. Ichabod basically means where is the glory? So notice this theme. That that Eli has made himself heavy by honoring himself. Now his heaviness has crushed him because God has become heavy upon him. And now she is saying where is the glory of Yahweh? Where is the heaviness of Yahweh now that everything is dying. And so she names her son this, saying the deaths of the father-in-law and her husband. She said the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured. That's a very depressing way to end your family. Your father and your husband and your brother-in-law are all dead on the same day. And then you're dying as you're giving birth to your son and you name your son, where is the glory? The child is supposed to be hope, but it's not because the family was so wicked as being judged by God. The birth of the child is overshadowed by the judgment on the family because of their sins. This is not God's fault that the boy is born into a time period of great, great depression. It's their sins that have done this. It's their sins that have done this.